The Lord is with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Grace and peace to you on behalf of Dean Robert Allen Hill and the Marsh Chapel community. As we are a gathered congregation, present here at the chapel at 735 Commonwealth Avenue in Boston, present in New England through National Public Radio, WBUR 90.9 FM, and present through internet and podcast around the globe at WBUR.org. Dean Hill sends his greetings from upstate New York, where he is on vacation with his family. We look forward to his return to us on August 5th. This morning, we continue our summer national preaching series, Apocalypse Then, Historical and Theological Reflections on New Testament Apocalyptic Texts. And we are pleased to welcome to our pulpit the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Wright Knust. Reverend Dr. Knust is an associate professor of New Testament and Christian origins at Boston University School of Theology and she is ordained in the American Baptist tradition. She is the author of Unprotected Texts, the Bible's surprising contradictions about sex and desire. One of the Huffington Post's top 12 books in religion in 2011, and also one of the books last year for our Sunday morning discussion group. She is also a recipient of the Frederick Burkhart Fellowship of the American Council of Learned Societies. Reverend Dr. Knust will spend the coming academic year in Rome, where, she'll, where she will be in residence at the American Academy in Rome and conducting research at the Vatican Library. The title of her sermon is A Hometown Prophet. Welcome, Reverend Dr. Knust. I'm Victoria Hart Gaskell an elder in the New England Conference of the United Methodist Church and a chapel associate here at Marsh. Joining with me in reading the service are Mr. John Liebold, the Reverend Barbara Kenley, and our previous Dean of the Chapel, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, with, Mrs. Rebe with Ms. Rebecca Phillips as our cantor for the psalm. Our prayers of the people are offered on our behalf by the Reverend Jennifer Quigley, as Mr. Bill Allen also offers our offertory prayer. Our musicians this morning are the Marsh Chapel Choir, under the direction of our own choral scholar, Patrick Waters. And we are pleased to welcome back Mr. Nathan Skinner as our organist. As always, we encourage your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, your selection of personal forms of ministry, and as the Spirit moves, your presence with us for worship. So now, beloved, rise up, now and at the invitation throughout this service, in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, in the praise and worship of God.
Beloved, let us pray together. O oh God, you have taught us to keep all your commandments by loving you and our neighbor. Grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart and united to one another with pure affection. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, during the singing of the Kyrie, we are invited to confess and to repent those things which separate us from God, ourselves, and our neighbor. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the second book of Samuel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 and 9 through 10. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and flesh. For some time, while Saul was king over us, it was you who led out Israel and brought it in. The Lord said to you, It is you who shall be shepherd of my people Israel, you who shall be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned, reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city all around from the millow inward, and David became greater and greater for the Lord 
the God of hosts, was with him. The word of the Lord. A reading from St. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 2 through 10. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, 
I will not boast except in my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is soon seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in reading responsively Psalm 48 with the Antiphon. to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. In its citadels, God has shown himself a sure defense. Then the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took flight. Trembling took hold of them there, pains as of a woman in labor, as when an east wind shatters the ships in Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God establishes forever. We ponder your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. Your name, O God like your praise, reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with victory. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the towns of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go all around it. Count its towers. Consider, consider well its ramparts. Go through its citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. 
He will be our guide forever. as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of our gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Glory to you, O Lord. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. It is a wonderful privilege to be here at Marsh Chapel with so many friends and former students and colleagues on this warm July day. 
I'm especially pleased to be in Marsh Chapel and to be reminded about how much I really do love being a professor at BU as much as I'm enjoying my summer vacation. <laughs> I've been living in Maine the last several weeks, helping my parents out with their farm and trying to finish some writing projects, which are going so-so. As some of you may already know, living in rural Maine means driving a lot. It takes a half an hour to get to the nearest bookstore, grocery store, or home improvement store, and even longer if I want to access certain, probably unnecessary, luxuries urbanites like myself have come to depend upon for our daily maintenance. So I've been driving more than usual, which means I've been listening to more radio than usual, most often MPBN, the public radio station in Maine. Can we just stop for a moment and say thanks to MPBN, WBUR, and public radio in general? I would not survive Summers in Maine without it. As a result of all of my radio listening, I am highly informed. I am also, however, getting tired of listening to profits. Between call-in shows and news programs, I've heard just about every sort of reaction to the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, by now. Especially from those running for president, but also from just about every other sector of our society as well. Journalists, politicians of every stripe, law professors, the proverbial man on the street, pundits from one think tank or another, and so on. All of whom are busily spelling out what will certainly happen next, what this means for our future. A great number of the voices on my radio are not unexpectedly prophesying doom in the form of government intervention, lack of access to medical treatments, a sicker population, and even death panels, which have reappeared under the guise of a purported set of policymakers eager to pull plugs and deny life support. For some, Obamacare is yet another sign of the decline and fall of American civilization. Others, however, are glad for anything that gets us closer to health care for all, even as they spell out the limits and unintended consequences of this new law. As for me, sitting in the, in the car listening to the radio, I just find myself happy that first Romneycare and now Obamacare have made it possible for our older son to remain insured under our policy until he is 26. Now that he's 23, this really matters to us as a family. I'm also hoping that this change will enable a friend of mine with a pre-existing condition to find a way to get out of a truly soul-killing situation at work while keeping health coverage for himself and his family. That is my prayer. If Jesus were consulted, perhaps he would agree that health care coverage is a good thing. After all, says Mark in our Gospel lesson today, Though Jesus could do no deed of power in Nazareth, he healed a few sick people anyway. Healing people seems to have been among his priorities. At any rate, driving around rural Maine, thinking about our sermon series this summer, and working on a chapter on the book of Revelation that is due by the end of July, which swiftly approaches, I find myself in prophecy overload. What 
is it about American culture that makes prophecies of doom so very popular? Why do we in love to envision dystopia instead of utopia in our movies and on our TV shows? Do we really need to destroy New York City one more time? And do we need to interpret events as sure signs that further misery must certainly been on the way, be on the way? Must our public prophets be so fixated on telling us what's wrong with the world, or, if Christian, on recounting once more how near God's judgment must surely be? Must we be kept in a constant state of fear and discouragement? I sometimes think that the drip, drip, drip of bad news and prophetic warnings about a worse future has done more to alienate and isolate us one from another than it has provoked change for the better or helped us find a way to be a people of faith. And when this never-ending stream of bad news is combined with assurances that divinely initiated destruction and punishment are inevitable, don't we risk putting ourselves on the side of the very things we supposedly hate? I mean, really, why bother to fight the, the tide of suffering if God is going to destroy everything anyway? Shouldn't we just concentrate on saving the righteous few while leaving the rest to their fate, however horrible? I am also worried that today's gospel lesson doesn't much help me in my current malaise, at least not at first reading. After all, in Mark, Jesus instructs his disciples to shake the dust off their feet if the villages they visit refuse to welcome them. This testimony to them, or against them, as the NRSV has it, appears to contain within it some sort of ritualized threat. Some manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark take the point further, adding the warning, truly it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for that city. By shaking the dust off their feet, the disciples were saying, goodbye, good riddance, and good luck to you when God's judgment comes. You'll be sorry. Is that what Jesus was trying to tell the residents of Galilee then? Listen to me and my disciples, or else? I think it is possible to read Mark's gospel this way, and certainly people have, including those who are even now claiming that the end will come in this generation, that God's punishments are swift and sure, and that only those who are righteous, in the very particular ways that current prophets of doom understand the term, will be saved. Yet I would like to call our attention to another feature of Mark's story, the verse, and he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. Isn't that curious? Jesus was unable to perform miracles in Nazareth? Really? From Mark's perspective, and ours today in this chapel, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man, so surely Jesus could do whatever he wanted to do. I checked Matthew's version, and he appears to have had the same reaction I did when he read Mark. Editing the problem away, he simplified the verse to read, 
Jesus did not perform many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Of course, from Matthew's perspective, Jesus could have done miracles, but he chose not to since he was annoyed. But that's not what Mark says. According to Mark, Jesus could not perform a miracle. He was not able to do it, though he did manage to heal a few people. Then Mark adds, and he was amazed because of their unbelief. So the NRSV that's printed in our bulletins this morning reads unbelief. But I would like to amend that translation of the word apistis and suggest instead lack of faith or unwillingness to trust instead. As I often tell my first-year Greek students, pistis and its opposite, a-pistis, were doing words, a fact that somehow gets lost in our words belief and unbelief. Perhaps the Protestant emphasis on inward transformation, that transformation that takes place when one believes in one's heart in Jesus Christ, has helped us to forget that in antiquity, and maybe today, pistis, faith, trust, loyalty, and also belief, involved doing things like getting up and displaying our loyalties in our daily actions. Back in the day when Mark was written, one could have faith and show loyalty to one's city, one's gods, one's family, and even the emperor. This pistis was clearly visible and was supposed to be seen by all. It seems to me then that the apistis, the lack of faith of the people of Nazareth, offers a possible key to Mark's interpretation of the events that transpired there. The rejection of their hometown prophet by the people of Nazareth, in my reading, was related not to some lamentable failure on the, their part to believe, to assent to a set of doctrines inwardly within their souls, but to their inability to trust in and therefore show loyalty to the good news that Jesus wanted, not only to share, but also to do, to do with them and for them. Because that's what Jesus was up to, good news. It's the gospel of Mark, remember? According to Mark, before Jesus arrived in Nazareth, he expelled a demon by the name of Legion from a truly miserable man who lived among the tombs of Gerizim. He cured a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and as a result had lost everything to doctors who couldn't heal her. We know something about that in our culture. And Jesus had raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. If those are not a series of acts that bring good news, I don't know what would be. Whatever wisdom Jesus was teaching in the local synagogue, that wisdom that led his former neighbors to marvel at him, I suspect that his words and his actions had more to do with healing, health, and hope than with end-time judgment. God's wrath and the current list of reasons why we should be filled with despair. If so, then the problem in Nazareth was that Jesus' former friends and neighbors could no longer hear 
and enact good news in their daily lives. And using their familiarity with Jesus and his family as an excuse, it was this inability to act on the basis of renewed hope that prevented their hometown hero from performing a deed of power while he was there. But why should they believe in good news when the drip, drip, drip of bad news had taught them to expect the worst? I can just imagine how it would be hearing every day of the latest abuses of the Roman prefect, the latest conflicts between the local Galileans and local Judeans, the latest Roman tax hike, the latest drought, the empty fishing nets, the daily march of scarcity, illness, and want. You name it. Perhaps bitter experience had made it clear to them that expecting the worst is the more sensible and, frankly, the safer way to live. So someone is ill, a cure can't be found, and she has lost everything to doctors. What else is new? Okay, many are struggling to find food and shelter and a living, while others have so much more than they need. Show me a village or a city or a nation where that isn't true. Yes, and to adopt Mark's terms, Nazareth, as we know, was burdened with a foreign government which, quite understandably, it didn't much like. I can just imagine Jesus' neighbors asking him, do you really think that demon or those legions can be expelled? Believing in good news, acting like good news can and will maybe happen is really just too painful. You of all people should know that, Mr. Hometown Boy. If my interpretation is right, then Jesus could not perform a deed of power in Nazareth because no one was willing to play on his good news team. His fellow Nazareans were simply too attached to their despair to allow themselves to even desire a change for the good and to lend themselves to making good prophecies come true. And who could blame them? But in a world where even good news my son Axel's access to health care. My son Leander, who survived a broken neck because doctors at Brigham and Women's knew what they were doing. My dad's heart attack that didn't kill him last summer. And my friend with a pre-existing condition who can dare to imagine a better life. When even this good news can get drowned out by threats of doom and fears of the bad things that will surely come, I would like to be on the side of good news this morning. The good news we can actually proclaim. The good that Jesus actually did by healing even a few. I might go so far as to argue that the threats of doom and the insistence that we only see gloom keep us from envisioning deeds of power that are actually already in our grasp those positive changes for the better, however small, that help us live, honor our neighbors, and remind us that God made the world for good. 
Listening to Moth Radio on my way back from the Mount White Mountains last week, I told you I've been listening to a lot of radio. I heard the most wonderful, heartfelt story by Elif Shafak, a Turkish writer struggling with writer's block and her journey through it. I know about writer's block. She described her sense after a devastating earthquake shook her neighborhood that she had once again lost faith in what she was doing. Her heart is like a pendulum, she said, that swings back and forth between a necessary optimism that enables her to keep writing and this other, darker loss of faith. She could no longer believe that her writing, her work, was worth much of anything in face of larger forces in the world. Really, why bother? Yet at some point, she noticed something else a difficult neighbor with whom she could finally share something, enemies on the block who, for a moment, became friends, and the small ways that people managed to reach out to one another and, as she put it, strike a spark of empathy. That's what we writers want, she concluded. Something to remain, a spark of empathy, and the possibility of a change. Trusting in the possibility of some good news is hard. Or at least it has sometimes been hard for me, and I'm probably the most privileged person I know. Big deeds of power, however, seem to require that we risk it. And by dig big deeds of power, I don't mean flashy predictions by prophets who purport to know exactly what God has in mind or who can boast of their fitness at biblically-inspired detective work. Paradoxically, the Mark and Jesus tells his disciples the gospel he is sending them to profess requires not flashiness, but a walking stick, sandals, and a single cloak. This gospel requires vulnerability and a willingness to trust even our very lives and our well-being to strangers, come what may. This gospel, Paul adds, is made evidence, evident in weakness. However powerful and amazing our visions and startling our revelations, even of paradise. The prophecy I think the Mark and Jesus is trying to get us to hear is not one of doom, but of the daily good news of the many blessings we already have and the possibility that maybe, somehow, we can do, be, and know good news ourselves. And so when that pendulum is swinging toward, why bother, or worse, self-satisfied predictions of the doom of someone else, I think Jesus is saying, stop it. Listen, look, notice. Even now, I am healing a few people. Even now, a spark of empathy can ignite. Even now, good news remains possible. Yes, there will be bad news. I'm sure I'll hear some more of it as I continue to drive around the state of Maine. There's no use pretending otherwise. But do we really need to hurry it along? Why not be harbingers of hope and allies of health and people who wish well for others? Yes, 
bad things are happening, really, really bad things, and hiding our heads in the sand will not make them go away. Yes, we can rest assured that more bad news is coming tomorrow, and frankly, the weight of sin and suffering is and will continue to be heavy. But whatever the final bad news will be, assuming that such finality must and will someday come, our daily job, our daily task, is to be people of the light, if we can possibly manage it. As the psalmist puts it, we are to ponder God's steadfast love and wonder at the beauty of our beloved city. As Mark suggests, we are to go out on our journeys ready to encounter one another openly, assuming the best from our neighbors, even when experience has taught us bitterly to expect the worst. Above all, we are to anoint with oil those who are sick, not to tell them that they deserve the misery that's coming to them. On a beautiful summer day in the state of Maine, in a flash rainstorm at the top of Mount Washington, after a long climb with friends, and watching people be kind to one another, perfect strangers meeting in the general store, on the tea, in the subway in New York, and even on the roadways going back and forth from one place or another. All I can think is, who wants all this doom anyway? Can we please stop wanting it? May we err today on the side of good news. May the drip, drip, drip of daily sorrows fail to win the day. And may God's true prophets speak to us of hope and wholeness and refrain from wishing for the worst. Amen.
may be seated. We come to a time in our worship as we gather our prayers as a community to bring them before God. And as our choir sings our call to prayer, I invite you to stand, remain seated, or kneel and come to the altar rail, whichever pose will best help you to be in a spirit of prayer. And you call us to be our best and true selves, and to answer the call to service and leadership in your church and in your world. We pray this morning for those who are still listening for your voice, who seek comfort in times of distress, answers in times of uncertainty, and hope in times of despair. May they find your peace, your faith, and love. We are reminded in our gospel this morning that we sometimes fail to raise up prophets in our midst, and that without the prayer and support of a community of faith, even the greatest among us can fail. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to notice, love, and nurture the ways in which each person, especially each young person, is called to be truly prophetic. For through your prophets, we as the body of Christ can truly change for the better. And God, on this warm, sunny day, it is difficult for our hearts to be heavy for too long. We give thanks for the joys in our lives, for the wonders of nature, for rest, for friends and family. Pour out your blessing on all those people who lighten our burdens and give us laughter and smiles. And we pray these things in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit and in the most holy name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
peace of the Lord be always with you. Good morning. My name is Rachel Cape, and as the Director of Hospitality, I'm pleased to welcome you to Marsh Chapel this morning. We hope you will take a moment to sign your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew so that you can get to know one another better. Our only announcement today is that next week we are holding Vacation Bible School here at Marsh Chapel in the afternoon after church. If any of you are interested in helping out or having your kids attend, please let me know. For any other upcoming services and activities, please keep an eye on the chapel website, bu.edu chapel, where you'll also find the opportunity for online giving. Now walk in love as Christ loved us in offering and sacrifice to God.
Dear God, we bring these gifts before you today not only to provide healing to our brothers and sisters around the world of their physical and mental, mental difficulties. We pray you bless these offerings to heal the unbelief that strikes us all, the inability to believe in hope. Let them be a sign of faith in good news. In your name we pray, amen. that Jesus Christ has shared with us. Let us believe in the beauty that truly surrounds us every day. And let us trust that God has designed both us and this world for good. 
Amen.